Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Joe Genie. This is Ambassadors at Large. The average American consumes, and I use the word consumes deliberately instead of the normal buys, uh, consumes 68 articles of clothing in a given year. If you multiply that by 330 million Americans, throw in a few hundred million Europeans, and then add the rest of the world, you start to see that the fashion industry has a significant ecological footprint. And that has consequences for the course of the 21st century. Uh, My guest today thinks about this sort of thing for a living. I'm delighted to introduce my good friend Fiona Fung. She has a Master's of Art in Fashion Futures at the London College of Fashion and was a finalist for the Caring Award for Sustainability. Uh, Fiona, welcome to the podcast. Hi, how are you? I I am well, thank you. You're actually the first person to ask me how I was doing (laughs) among all of my guests. So thank you for that. I'm doing splendidly. That's good. Um, I always try to redirect questions at other people, but today I will be uh, good at trying to hopefully answer them directly. I I hope so, because you know way more about this than than I do. Um, But let's start with sort of defining the problem. You wrote in a recent blog post that the the fashion industry is by some accounts the second biggest polluter in the world. I mean, we we don't think about this necessarily, but uh, the ordinary things that we wear cotton or or leather to say nothing of of synthetic fabrics uh, have a big environmental impact um yes exactly fashion is the second biggest polluting industry in the world next to oil actually and uh one of the reasons for this is because of its pervasiveness you know essentially clothing is a type of skin it's the skin that we choose to wear so everyone has to have it and it's it's it ha- its reach is really big, and that's really what contributes to, um, you know, the numbers being so large as well. Yeah, you you'd sent me some articles to sort of prepare about this. One of the interesting ones that the you you sent one that had just a bunch of numbers in it, and one of the ones was uh, the average woman has thirty complete outfits in her wardrobe today, and a couple decades ago that figure was nine. And it's just part of it is is that there's seven billion people and they all need clothing. But part of it is that they use a lot more clothing than they they used to. What's what's changed? Right. Um. I, several layers. I mean, first of all, uh, of course, there is the idea of fast fashion and how fast fashion, the whole model and the system, has cre- uh basically was founded on. Um, the idea of a capitalist economic system. And so, you know, they kind of, and then another layer is the psychology behind it. So the, the, the marketing campaigns where they have, they play on our psychology and our insecurities, you know, I'm sure you've heard of this before, but it does um, create this kind of drive and this need to spend and consume. And, and if you're talking about outfits, uh, you know, for a month for like an average woman, I think, you know, it's not to say that fashion and clothing doesn't have its place in our daily lives. You know, fashion is very much a way of how we identify ourselves and express ourselves. And it's very much a human element to us. You know, I think, I think the problem comes when that expression turns to this kind of faux expression, which fast fashion companies try to sell to us. 
Now, if we could define fast fashion for a moment, there's there's kind of two elements of this. Part of it is that you'll have like a, a really high end house produce uh, a look, and then you'll have a bunch. You'll have like the H and M's of the world basically rip off that look and produce it in in large quantities made out of plastic. Um, I'm being a, a bit reductive here, but but, but you, you have this sort of right. proliferation. But part of it is also the idea of of micro seasons, where you you instead of just having like a spring line and a fall line, you'll have looks that are basically just only meant for say the month of August, and you'll buy something, wear it three or five times, and it's not even designed to be worn more than that, and it'll start to fall apart or it'll go out of style, and then it'll be discarded. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's uh, the huge problem in fashion is not just the capitalist bit, the psychological bit, but also um, the calendar aspect. You know, it's something that we've kind of grown accustomed to. So funny enough, you see fast fashion, which uh, cycles in. I used to work in retail as well. uh, And we would get new product in almost every two weeks. And we get restocking every week. So on the mass supply chain, you know, you're getting this uh, new product all the time. And what, what's, what's been going on recently, especially in the last few years, is that luxury fashion's calendar has almost kind of coincided and paralleled fast fashion calendar. And um, one of the reasons, of course, for that is the uh, advent of technology, so when you look at social media outlets that have been able to kind of just show runway looks right away and people and like fast fashion companies that can just copy them right away, you kind of break that chain of exclusivity. And then the luck you find the luxury fashion houses competing with the mass market fashion houses in terms of um, creating product and being more forward and being new. But the irony is that this is what we call um, the race to the bottom. Uh, so it's um, it's it's really like the calendar is very much a big issue in terms of you know how often do we actually need to replenish stock and as a luxury house how often how many collections can you really have because if you're going to be forward thinking you should take a little bit more time to develop and analyze your ideas and your innovation you know fast fashion is just saying okay well you your shirt is broken or whatever, you need a new style, you need a quick fix, this is what we're here for. They produce things on a different time scale as luxury fashion houses. So right now the merging of both makes it a little bit complicated and it also contributes to this um, huge you know, uh, cycle of consumption. I mean, there is an alternate argument that this is basically a democratizing effect that, that, that fast fashion has basically brought looks and styles that were previously only for the people who could afford luxury brands to the masses is there is there merit to this is there, or 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 absolutely i think as a uh, a girl who has been interested in fashion since she was 6 years old i would say for sure that their um fast fashion has afforded me you know the uh kind of opportunity to dream and that's that's the poetic element of fashion that um that the industry is constantly trying to contend with, you know, what are our desires uh, when it comes to clothing, when it comes to identity, when it comes to appearance and, and how do we reach those desires? And we usually express that through our clothes. So I think, um, you know, I wouldn't have been able to feel like I was being creative outwardly in my, so to speak, skin, if I didn't have the availability of clothes um, that were created from, 
you know, mass market. So there is definitely like this huge contradiction as well. And I think, um, for a lot of people, you know, the average, not very many people can actually afford luxury items, let's just say. Right. And obviously, (laughs) and so that, that's, that's the problem is that, um, fast fashion gives us the opportunity, but then also at what point are we doing this where it doesn't really become satisfying anymore? It's not really a form of identity expression more. It's just like the need to consume. And, and then it kind of, you would think that, okay, consumers have a certain power in terms of their decision and spending, but actually huge amount of power and decision-making does have to be in the hands of these businesses and corporations, um, who are conducting their business and how they choose to design products. And as a designer, I think that's, that's what I've, what I've been looking at a lot is, is to how to consciously design. Well, that and that sort of leads to my next line of questioning, which is, I mean, the way I see it, if one accepts that that, I mean, and it's hard not to, given the available evidence, that there's an environmental cost to all of this, that there's there's a cost to the planet. There are sort of two ways to go about trying to change the status quo as it is. One is to get people to buy fewer things and better things. And the other is to uh, is to make the things out of more sustainable things. But mm-hmm. we'll we'll address each of those in turn. But starting with the first, it, it raises this is one of these classic free market questions: uh, is the chicken and egg thing of who is responsible for changing the culture? Is this is is the consumerism that we see and and, and the proliferation of fast fashion and discardable articles of clothing? Is that something that came from consumer desires and therefore we have to have a movement of consumers to change it or is it something that the industry kind of foisted on consumers to get them to buy more stuff and it's really up to the industry to start to change the way that it does business i think it's a two-way street it's always a dialogue the business works with the customer and the customer works with the business the designers are the um let's say the translators of uh of this kind of dialogue that's going on and I think that it, it is the, the chicken egg situation. You're right. You know, a huge part of it um, has to do with consumers. Why do consumers feel like psychologically they need to spend that kind of money? And why aren't consumers questioning businesses um, who produce their product? And the same goes for businesses. Why aren't businesses questioning how they design? Why aren't they questioning where their products came from? And why aren't they questioning, you know, the, uh, the livelihoods or the workers that are involved in the making of, uh, of their, their products to sell? And for me personally, as a designer, I think that, you know, there should be a certain element of pride that you have for the company that you own. And a lot of people uh, forget that and they're more driven by profit. So, all right. So, so I'm going to take a, a, a slight side detour here and and just uh, ask a, a purely anecdotal question. And the anecdote is me. So, for for those who don't know me personally, I'm 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 like I have a very sort of skinny, oddly tapered body that doesn't really lend itself to clothing off the rack. So basically, I have to buy everything custom. And I feel like there's been a a kind of resurgence in custom clothing. I mean, that used to be how clothing was made. You go in and they, they make it for you. This is, you know, ages ago. But obviously that 
that kind of thing. You can, it's hard to do that on an industrial scale. So it's almost always more expensive. It's always it's almost always more exclusive, and it effectively forces me to buy less stuff because <laughs> I'm buying better stuff. But the stuff is made for me. It's made for my body. Like I only have two sport coats, but they were both made for me, and they'll last longer as a result of it. Um, it I still get the sense that while this is a a booming market it's a niche market and that this is not how most people are buying their clothing but but could it be uh absolutely um especially when you move into uh the luxury sector you know custom made clothing is not just uh this idea of a first world luxury to be honest if you look historically between tribes um ethnic cultures around the world uh they make clothes custom made actually, right? And especially when it comes to something like a wedding ceremony where you have this special garment, uh, it, it's, there's a story behind it. And so custom-made is, of course, the, you know, the seed of the whole industry to begin with you know, thousands of years ago. I think the reason that it's not working now is because people still do like product right away. So if you consider something like ordering online, let's just say, and 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 then you have to uh, custom make a suit and that takes weeks, right? So ordering online, you know, you kind of have to wait a bit before you get the, the item. And with a custom made suit, same, you have to wait. Whereas if you look at when you go into a brick and mortar store, you can get it right away. And so I think the, the idea of immediacy is, is uh, kind of um, one of the aspects. Also, when it comes to custom-made items, it's, it is very much a niche market because of the type of categories that it can offer in clothes. So it could offer it in suiting. It can offer it in uh, wedding, um, maybe special event clothing. But on a day-to-day basis, uh, do people feel that um, they want to custom-make their clothes? Not really. So the other way to get people to consume in a more sustainable way is to sell things that are made out of more sustainable things. And this is work that you've really been working on. And I feel like I'm seeing more and more of this. Like G-Star had this this campaign where they had jeans that were made out of ocean plastic that that had been reclaimed and uh, I think Nike had an all ocean plastic basketball sneaker that I desperately want but is right now just a proof of concept. I mean there's always a risk with these sorts of things that they wind up being like ethanol where it's like it's made of an environmentally sustainable thing but because of the way it's made it it takes so much effort to produce it that it all it's almost environmentally a wash but uh, it seems like there's some promising work here, and you've done some pretty cool stuff on this, including some work with seaweed, if I, I understand correctly. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Uh, sure. Um, you know, it's just the the beginning of my research right now, and that's kind of the um, blessings of doing a master's. It kind of sets you off for what you might want to do for the rest of your career. And so the beginnings of my research was looking at alternatives to biofuel, um, sorry, to petroleum, alternatives to petroleum. And, uh, you know, the types of biofuels that were out there and algae was seaweed is one of them. So I looked at, you know, different types of synthetic materials in the fashion industry uh, that use um, petroleum based products. And I thought, well, maybe if, you know, in the future when or maybe even in the near future, if we decide to harvest more seaweed and more algae, 
that this could not only be a biofuel source, but the biomass that is left over can be used to create products for us to use. And in this way, you're kind of killing two birds with one stone. And you're, uh, you know, both could be positive aspects and you could contribute to your, uh, to the positive, um, ecosystems of the production process to create something for you that will give you enjoyment such as fashion. So that's kind of what I'm looking at is like, like designing a positive system based on seaweed because, and the reason that I did my research on seaweed is not just because it's alternative to, uh, petroleum, but also for the fact that it has multiple benefits. And I'm always interested in, in these kinds of resources that have more than one benefit available to us. You know, it's not just resource, good, done. You know, it ha- it's a resource that does something else. And then, you know, and then it also creates a product. And at the afterlife of it, uh, it's biodegradable. As we all know, petroleum comes from coal. So it takes actually hundreds of years to uh, biodegrade, whereas something like algae and seaweed is a natural product. It, it's faster, you know, when you take it to the landfill. So this is, these were the concepts that I was looking at in my research. Yeah, it really seems like the, this, this should be, I mean, th- this sounds like the future and it sounds really cool. I mean, I just saw a Ted talk recently where a, an MIT scientist, uh, had developed basically, uh, a out of discarded uh shellfish shells not killing the shellfish but just like the the discarded shells yeah. a, a, a material that could mimic many different types of garments including 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 silk which could be sort of the end of of the, the 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 slaughter of silkworms which is you know it's a problem for me like let's say i care about silkworms and i don't want to yeah. see them but i also i also am a working professional and i wear neckties and yeah. you can't wear wool neckties in the summer. So <laughs> it's basically, I mean, almost all of them are made out of silk. And almost all of them were made in a way where the, the, the silkworms were were, um, were boiled alive, which is unpleasant. Yeah. Um, th- this isn't even, I mean, this opens up the whole can of worms of animal rights activism, uh, yeah. which, is a, which is a whole separate issue. But it just yeah. seems like there should be alternatives to, to, to either environmentally or... or or ethically questionable materials. Mm-hmm. And material design is such a huge, fascinating topic. And, you know, one of the ways we can look at alternative materials is one, biomimicry, and number two, uh, new perceptions of materials. So, meaning biomimicry in the sense where if I was able to produce a genetically modified, let's say, um, type of fiber that resembles silk, you know, gives us the feeling that we love about silk that we've loved for thousands of years. Right, that would be biomimicry, and that is where technology, science, and innovation come into play, as well as experimentation. And then the other option with material would be uh, perceptions. So sometimes just letting the material, the alternative material that you're using, to speak for itself. You know, maybe we're not used to the uh, using something that looks like leather, but it doesn't feel quite like it. It doesn't have that buttery, you know, suppleness or that smell. But maybe we can try to as human beings condition ourselves and learn to appreciate other kinds of materials and their surfaces and textures. And and that takes time as well. So it's kind of these two paths when it comes to alternative materials. But the reason alternative materials fascinate me so much is because 
you know, there's the concept of biodiversity, where if you exhaust one thing too much, you're basically killing the rest of the ecosystem. Whereas if you're doing something little by little, you know, if you're taking, let's say, a little bit of the seashell uh, concept of materials, or let's say you're taking algae here to create this product, and and maybe you're taking mushroom, you know, uh, and fungus and creating another product. So there's these different strands where you can kind of spread out that level of... Um, of dependence on a crop such as, for example, cotton. So the only question is, of course, is then you get into concepts of scalability. You know, how much can you really produce doing um, doing this process and this method? So uh, there, that brings up like a whole but a whole bunch of other questions um, in terms of design and operations. Now, as a consumer, I feel like I'm I'm somewhat powerless. Some companies will really market themselves as being environmentally sustainable or, or you know, doing fair labor practices. And we've done an earlier podcast where we talked about the corporate supply chain where similar issues are raised, where as a consumer, I know what country the garment was made in, but I know almost nothing, and I know what percentage cotton it is, <laughs> but I know almost nothing else about it. What, I mean, part of me is, this is this is a, my my cry to the wilderness please let right. allow me to be a more responsible consumer but as a consumer right. what what can i do to make sure that to the extent possible in the current climate i i'm buying stuff that is not uh drying up the rlc uh yeah. you know desertifying subset you know the sahel etc exactly and it's funny because it's funny when you think of how much research goes into buying something when all you want is a white t-shirt, let's just say, right? We are so, it is so easy for us as consumers to get a white t-shirt. Um, do we really need to go on the computer and read for hours about where this organic cotton might've come from and this process and how a white t-shirt is made before we buy it? So that's just our culture now. And I think that uh, it, it is a part of the consumer's decision-making process, but that's why for me as a designer, I think as a designer who might work for a business and who is going to be a professional in the industry, I would like the company that I'm working for to start asking these questions as well. And the difficulty of relaying certain things to a customer is that, you know, you can't have like the whole supply chain written on the inside wash care label of a garment, right? You already have the wash care label, which most people just cut up anyways. And most people just decide to dry clean. Side note, I have uh, never figured yeah. out what all the little symbols mean. They they look like cuneiform or, or or like hieroglyphics or something like that. I mean, I guess technically they sort of are, but but, but you know, it'll be like a it'll be like a circle with a a line through it, and then a, 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 an ambiguous looking what appears to be some sort of appliance. But I don't know the specifics. Am I not supposed to wash it? Am I not supposed to dry it? Am I not supposed to cold wash it? I I have no I have absolutely no idea. This is a a symbolism failure. <laughs> Exactly. And that's, that's where it becomes kind of the, uh, uh, both, uh, understanding of dialogue. So the, the customer, let's say us as average citizens should kind of educate ourselves in terms of, you know, what the wash care label symbols are. Maybe it should be on a test, you know, because this is going to be something that we're using for the rest of our life rather than let's say trigonometry. Sorry. But, uh, in the other sense, you know, companies have this, uh, need to, what, it's what we call um, in sustainable fashion study um, transparency and to basically explain to customers exactly where it is that uh, their products come from. You know, is it, if it's leather, is it sourced from any of Brazil's 
uh, endangered rainforests. This kind of uh, dialogue that businesses should try to market, you know. Um, and then the flip side is that as customers, do we w- really want to hear about it sometimes? You know, it, it can be a very daunting topic. And um, even for someone who studied sustainability for like a year and a half, I'm still very new into this. Um, sometimes I get really sick of hearing about it. So it's a very much a dialogue communication. It's about, it's about transparency and it's about, um, you know, which information to release ironically uh, and, and, and just for inherently for a business to just do it right. I think that if a, if a business was good and if we had a little bit more trust, like forgive me for sounding a little bit like, you know, uh, optimistic, but if we all had a little bit of trust, then maybe we wouldn't, we could feel like we could trust the businesses that we put our money into and we won't need to, you know, wonder and question so much and feel like, you know, where is this garment from? But is this farmed here? So that's why for me as a designer, going back to what I was saying, uh, a lot of it is about um, building good business practices when it comes to creating a product that you're putting out into the world. Fiona Fungs, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, this has been really enlightening and uh, a topic about which I, I knew very little, um, certainly before I met you, and uh, and even less before uh, this episode. So, I, And I hope uh, all of our listeners found it as enlightening as I did. Where can they find you uh, on the internet if they want to know more about what you are doing? Uh, they can find me on, on LinkedIn. <laughs> Um, I have a website. It's FionaWFung.com. And it's more of a portfolio of my work. Um, You know, emerging research that I'm doing, I do still try to keep it um, a little bit more tight in terms of uh, its its reach. But definitely, like, check out my website to look at um, some of the other questions that I've been exploring throughout, um, you know, my education and my career. And don't get her mixed up with Fiona Fung, the, the pop singer. Exactly, yes. <laughs> Fiona, thank you so much once again for, for coming on the podcast. Thanks. You can find the podcast online by going to joegenie.com. That's J-O-E-G-E-N-I.com slash podcast. Or you can subscribe for free in the iTunes store by searching for Ambassadors at Large. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back with another episode real soon. Until then, bye-bye. Bye-bye.